with you this morning, and uh, we're continuing this study in Matthew, and it made me think about some things that have been going on recently in life, and uh, particularly being a parent, because being a parent is really cool and fun. There's a lot of fun stuff that goes on with that, and I think for me personally, like one of the, the coolest parts of being a parent is getting to teach your kids something for the first time. I really love teaching our boys, and so uh, Anna and I, we've been really intentional about teaching both of our boys about Jesus and the gospel, and, and Judah could tell you right now that when a person who loves Jesus dies, they get to go be with Jesus in heaven, and that's awesome, and uh, so that's really fun, but one of the most frustrating parts of being a parent is when you realize that maybe your kids didn't quite get what you were trying to teach them, and uh, maybe they misunderstood it quite a bit, so the other week... I was hanging out with the boys in the living room, and sweet little baby Ezra uh, found a cord that was plugged into the wall because babies are attracted to him. And uh, he goes, and he's about to start, you know, putting his mouth on it. And I, like, run over. I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. And I grab him, and Judah looks at me, and he goes, Daddy, it's okay. He's just going to munch on it. And I'm like... Yeah, no, I know. That's the problem. Like, that's why I had to grab him because, and so I had to explain. I was like, look, if he it munches on it, it could electrocute him, and then he could die. And then my sweet, beautiful three-year-old son looked at me and goes, Daddy, it's okay if Ezra dies. Judah Alexander Chapman, why would you ever say something like that? And he looks at me just very innocently. He goes, well, if he dies, he gets to go be with Jesus. And I'm like, okay. I, I see the problem here. Yes, like, okay, you were listening to what I was trying to teach you. You get it. That's great. But we're going to have to, like, reassess this whole thing. So we need to go back over this lesson and, and try to actually learn what I was talking about in the first place. So I did explain it to him. The problem is he just misunderstood what I was saying entirely. And that's okay because he's three. But it's not okay if you're a teacher in Israel. And what was happening is when Jesus came on the scene... And he looks upon the people of Israel, he sees that the religious leaders of Israel, they had been very diligently teaching the people. They were teaching them the word. They were teaching them the law. The problem is, they just didn't understand it. (laughs) They completely misunderstood what God meant in his law. And so they were confusing the people. They were having people focus almost entirely on their actions and who they were outwardly. They were teaching people how to be really religious, but they really didn't have any idea what made a person truly righteous. And so there was a lot of confusion. And and so when Jesus is preparing this message and he's beginning this Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing is he's helping people unlearn what the Pharisees have taught them and relearn what God's law actually means. He's trying to show us that, that you're, what it looks like to be people who belong to his kingdom. What does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? And so he's helping people unlearn, and he's helping people relearn, which means we got to pay careful attention to these words of Jesus because I'm almost positive there's some stuff in our lives this morning that we need to unlearn too, right? And I want you to notice how high of a bar Jesus sets right at the very beginning. Look at back at verses 17 through 20. This is what he says. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So notice, first and foremost, how this directly contradicts one of the most popular notions in our day, right? Like one of the most popular things for people to say today is that Jesus got rid of the law. The law no longer applies to us at all. Jesus did away with it. So you could be an overly buff, super hip preacher in North Carolina and say something silly like God broke the law for love. Never happened, okay? Or you could be a a really great communicator in Georgia and say something equally as silly like we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. We need to unhitch from the law of God. And that's also wrong because notice, Jesus says the exact opposite here. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill the law. And he puts this huge standard on people. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I want you to just think about how impossible that would have seemed to those first people who were listening to this sermon. Keep in mind, when Jesus is preaching this sermon, He's speaking to a very large crowd filled with mostly fishermen, uh, your farmers, your everyday ordinary people, people who look just like us. They're you know just your everyday people. And He says, you know the gold standards of righteousness in Israel? The scribes and the Pharisees? Unless you are more righteous than them, you're not getting in. And we want to go, okay, well, Praise the Lord, that doesn't apply to us today. But it does. This is the same message for us today. Jesus says to us today, unless your personal righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Which means, as we go throughout this section of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to have to ask the question every week, well, what does it look like to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees? What does it actually look like for my life? Because... Something about the scribes and the Pharisees, they were great at keeping the letter of the law, but they totally neglected the spirit of the law. And one of Jesus' main goals in this sermon is to show people that, listen, you can keep the letter of the law, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're righteous in the eyes of God. In fact, you can try to be keeping the letter of the law, and you could still be called sinful in the eyes of God because you miss the spirit of the law entirely. It's not about what you do. That's not what makes you righteous. It starts at the heart. And so Jesus is going to be speaking directly to our hearts. And notice, he starts with a topic that might make some of us uncomfortable. Not as uncomfortable as next week, so praise God you're here this week. Uh, You can read ahead if you don't know what that's about. He starts with anger. right? So if we want to know what it looks like to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees in relation to this topic, we need to be asking the question, well, what do truly righteous people do about anger? What do truly righteous people do about anger? And I want you to notice what he says in verses 21 to 24. He says, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, That everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift there on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. 
So one of the reasons that the people were so misled by the teachers in Israel is because the teachers in Israel, one of the biggest problems with their teaching is that they had this habit of reducing the law down to its simplest level. They kept everything surface level, right? Uh, Their understanding of the law, it was a mile wide and an inch deep. And they would always reduce the law down to their ability to keep the law. Did you notice that? That's, that's one of the main problems that they had here. So, so in other words, this is how it works out. God says, okay, you shall not murder. And they go, okay, we won't kill anybody. Done. Next law. Lay it on us. We can add more to these. You just keep, this is easy, right? As long as it's about the actions and what we do, keeping the law is pretty easy. So God says, you shall not murder. They said, all right, we won't kill anybody. But that's just reducing the law down to their ability to keep the law. They said, I'm a good person. I know I'm not perfect. I'll be the first to admit it. But I'm a good person. And as long as I don't go about killing other people, then I can say that I have kept this law and I am righteous and I can pat myself on the back and feel good about myself. And unfortunately, that's just not what God meant when he said you shall not murder, at least not entirely. And I want you to understand before we judge the scribes and the Pharisees, we need to understand that we do this same thing today, whether we like to admit it or not. We love to interpret the Bible in whatever way makes us comfortable, right? We love to interpret the Bible and reduce it down to our ability to keep it so that we can convince ourselves that we're not actually sinning, right? So for instance, you you tell someone today, hey, uh, the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. And they're going to say something like, well, the Bible meant something different back then. It was referring to pederasty. It was referring to to this, to that. It wasn't referring to loving, monogamous, homosexual relationships. And so, based on my interpretation of what God says in His Word, I'm not actually doing anything wrong. So we're always right in our own eyes, right? We do it again today. You tell someone, hey, Bible says very clearly, abortion's murder. And they say, well, when does life actually begin? It's probably just a a clump of cells at that point, right? And so, if it's just that, then it's probably not murder. And so as long as I do this based on my interpretation, I'm not actually doing anything wrong because it's not murder in my eyes. You see how we're not so different from the scribes and Pharisees, right? Like, I mean, you could pick any topic and we could just throw it in there, but this is what we do all the time. We take the Bible and we reduce it down to our ability to keep it so that no matter what, we are always right in our own eyes so that we can feel good about ourselves, pat ourselves on the back and convince ourselves, I'm righteous, I'm a law keeper, yay me. And God wants us to go deeper than that. He wants us to realize that it's not just about what we do. It's about who we are from the inside out. That he cares about our hearts. And so Jesus is actually clarifying for us here what God meant when he said, you shall not murder. It wasn't just don't go and kill someone. He was saying that if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, then you face the exact same punishment as someone who actually did physically go through with the act of murder. And the reason is because every murder begins in the heart, doesn't it? The heart is what gives birth to hatred and contempt, malice, depravity, wickedness. And without these things, no murder would ever take place. And so Jesus wants us to understand, it's no good thinking that we're righteous law keepers who are keeping the law of God perfectly just because we've never actually physically murdered someone if we have essentially murdered them in our own hearts. If we have this type of anger. You see, it's man who looks on the outward appearance, but God always looks on the heart. That's where he's going to start. 
And that's what this is. It's ultimately a heart issue. It's about harboring hatred and malice in your heart towards another person. It's wanting them to get theirs. You might not actually say it out loud, but secretly. In your heart, you haven't told anybody, but you're hoping vengeance is coming. You're hoping they get what's coming to them. You want them secretly to suffer and to face hardship and pain. And you would never admit it to anyone, but it'd make you a little bit happy, wouldn't it? And Jesus is addressing that. Because that's a lot harder to deal with than just don't go murder someone, right? It might be easy not to do that. But when you have that type of anger in your heart, that's not so easy to deal with. And it's interesting, the word for anger here in the Greek, it doesn't actually uh, refer to frustration or irritation with someone or something. And praise God for that, right? Because if this referred to frustration or irritation, then every parent of a three-year-old or a teenager or anybody who's ever been to the DMV would just skip this section of Scripture for a while, right? (laughs) Wait for them to become adults. So this word doesn't refer to frustration or irritation. It actually, this is very interesting, this word, it always refers to anger that precedes destructive behavior. It's anger that is going to give rise to some form of destructive behavior. You can think of it, it's the fuse that's going to lead to the explosion. And that's why this is so dangerous. It's it's a form of anger that's going to lead to destructive behavior. And one form of destructive behavior is insulting someone else, right? Essentially emptying another person of their worth. And that's what Jesus knows that we're going to have a tendency to do because notice what he says. He says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the judgment. And the word fool here is the Greek word moros, which is where we get our word moron, right? And you might not think much about that word. We just call someone a moron, we move on with our day. No big deal in our culture. But, interestingly enough, in the Bible, moros was used in situations that would refer to people who don't actually belong to the kingdom of God. And so in the Bible, if you were calling someone morose, you were essentially calling that person unsaved and condemning them to hell. And the Pharisees did this all the time. They'd look at someone and they'd go, okay, I don't like that person. Like Jesus. And they'd go, this person clearly can't be from God. They must be from the devil. So we should try to get rid of them because that person is not part of God's kingdom and they're definitely going to hell. Why? Because I don't like them. That's why. They're morose. And again, we want to judge the scribes and the Pharisees. But can we be honest and say that we have a tendency to do this same thing today? I mean, don't, don't we tend to do this from time to time, right? Like what happens is, you know, Christians, we can be some of the most judgmental people on earth. Amen. Yeah, you don't want to admit it because it's us, but <laughs> you know it's true. Christians can be some of the most judgmental people on earth. And what happens is we'll look at someone And we'll go, okay, I don't really like that person for whatever reason. And then I observe them for a time. And then I say, you know what? I really, I definitely don't like that person now. In fact, they anger me. And because they anger me, I'm going to offer some sort of diagnosis on their spiritual condition. They didn't ask me to do it. I don't know their heart, but I'm going to anyways. And because I don't like that person and because they anger me, guess what? Well, he's not really a Christian. She's probably not even saved. They are definitely going to hell. We do that, even though we don't want to admit it. But I want you to understand, church, that a tendency to judge the spiritual condition of others is often an indication of our own spiritual maturity. If we're going to go around offering these diagnostics like we know everybody's heart, and we're going to judge the spiritual condition of others, I just want you to understand that's usually an indication of your own spiritual maturity. 
Because we forget that it's not always as simple as someone is either saved or unsaved, right? I mean, at the end of the day, those are the only two categories, but it's not always that simple. For, for instance, there are true Christians who are baby Christians. They're new in their faith. They're, they're a brand new Christian. And listen, are they going to do some dumb stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I did. I still do, right? <laughs> are they going to believe some things that aren't quite right? Yeah, absolutely they are. But they don't need you saying that they're not a true Christian and that they're going to hell. What they need in that moment is discipleship and growth, not your condemnation and judgment. There are other Christians who are true Christians and stuff has happened to them in life and for whatever reason they're starting to become backslidden and they're starting to stray and they're starting to wander. And what they don't need in that moment is for you to condemn them and say, well, they were never even a Christian to begin with. They don't need your dismissal or your anger. What they need is patience and instruction and correction. Only immature Christians have such high expectations for people that they expect all people without exception to live up to those expectations right from the get-go. And if they don't, well, then they're not a Christian. They're going to hell. That's not what Jesus calls us to do, church. I want you to understand that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he literally prayed and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He did not pray, Father, strike them down now. He did not pray, Father, send the fire from heaven now. Father, send them to hell now. And so I want you to just think about this. If Jesus was willing to show that kind of patience and understanding and love and forgiveness to people who were literally murdering him, how much more should we be willing to show patience and love and forgiveness to those who just anger us? That's why this is such a hard issue. Because it deals with things in the heart that we don't want to deal with. So God says you shall not murder. And you might have your hand ready to pat yourself on the back thinking, okay, never done that. I'm righteous. God must love me and think that I'm the best. Because you have never actually physically murdered someone that I know of. But here's what Jesus is saying. If we have bitterness in our hearts, if our anger could give rise to some form of destructive behavior, if we're ready to condemn others to hell simply because they anger us and we don't like them, then we are guilty of breaking this exact same law. And the Bible says that we're liable to the judgment. Now, thankfully for us, Jesus doesn't just leave us in that condemnation. He offers us forgiveness and mercy and grace, and he invites us to find life in himself. And I want you to understand, folks, that's exactly what he expects us to show to others. That same mercy that same forgiveness, that same grace, and show them that there is life in Christ. But rather than do that, what do we do, church? We're we're either going to retaliate and let our anger give birth to some form of destructive behavior, or else, here's our favorite thing to do, we're going to compensate. And we're going to try to make ourselves feel better and try to convince ourselves that we're not that bad by doing what? Participating in some religious activities. That's what we love to do, right? People in our day love to think that some religious activities can just wash away all of our sins. That's what the Pharisees were doing here. They were having the type of anger in their hearts that could literally give rise to actual murder. And rather than dealing with that, rather than extending forgiveness and grace and mercy and all this kind of stuff, what do they do? They go to church and they offer some gifts. And they think, I can't be that bad after all. Would a bad person go to church? Would a bad person offer gifts at the church? Would they do that? Of course not. So I'm really not that bad because look at me doing all this religious stuff. And again, 
let's not think that we're so different from them, right? Because if you want to see this today, just go on social media. Pick any social media site. Here's what you'll see. You'll see uh, some Christians, some professing Christians, say some of the most mean and vile and hateful things. You would never know they were Christian, but they'll tell you. So, But you just look at what they say. The meanest, most vile, hateful things that you'll ever see. And then a day later, they'll go, can't wait to go to church. I love Jesus. And you're thinking, what in the world? Do you remember what you posted yesterday, or did you delete that already? I mean, I've talked with some people who are professing Christians, living in open, unrepentant sin, who try to excuse their sin, and they've literally said to me, well, pastor, don't worry about me, because I still give my tithe every week to the church. Okay, I'm not going to make a sermon about this, I promise. It's not going to be a sermon, but just let me say this real quick, okay? God doesn't care about getting your money if he doesn't have your heart. Can we just admit that, right? But first and foremost, God doesn't need your money. He owns everything. There's literally nothing you could give to God that isn't already his, okay? So so don't think that you're doing something special by by giving your money to God as if that's going to make up for anything. God doesn't care about getting your money if he doesn't have your heart. And in the words of Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. So I literally used to know a guy. He was in a Bible study I was in. He was addicted to meth, and he was selling meth. And when I found out about it, I went to him and I tried talking with him about that, tried calling him to repentance, showing him how that's not in line with the biblical teaching, all that kind of stuff. And he literally said to me, hey, man, don't worry about me. I'm still coming to Bible study this week. And I'm like, that's the least of my concerns. (laughs) He thought that just by coming to Bible study, that was just going to make up for him selling meth throughout the week. This is what we do. We make the same mistake, church. And here's I just want you to understand this this morning, right? Religious activities cannot atone for our sins. Please understand that. Religious activities cannot atone for our sins. Only Jesus and his blood can atone for your sins and my sins and the sins of the world. And it's easy to hide behind religious activities to make us feel better about ourselves, isn't it? I mean, we go to church, we know we're living in sin, but then we go to church and we convince ourselves, well, hey, I'm not that bad after all. I may be living in sin, but at least I went to church. At least I was baptized. At least I gave money to the church. But listen, that's not true worship. That's nothing more than a balm to make us feel better about ourselves. So please hear me say this. I know we have a lot of visitors here this morning. I'm very thankful that you're here this morning. Please come back another time. But if you're here this morning and you think that your presence here this morning can do anything to make up for the presence of sin in your life, you are sadly mistaken. There is no amount of church attendance that can wash that slate clean. There is no amount of religious activities that can do anything to make up for or atone for your sins. If that's what we're doing, folks, I just want you to understand it. If that's what we're doing, then we've become legalists. We're depending on ourselves and what we do to make us righteous in the eyes of God. I want to be declared righteous in God's eyes, so what I'll do? I'll go to church, I'll participate in some religious activities, and then I'll convince myself God must be pleased with me because look at what I've done. We're saying, I can make this right. I can do better. I can show myself to be worthy. I can be a good person. I can show myself to be a righteous person. And listen, the Bible says, actually, you can't. The Bible says it does not matter how much religious stuff you do. That's not going to change your sin situation. 
The, the Bible says that you could help out as many people as you want to. You can give as much money to the church as you want to. You can volunteer as much as you want to. You can only speak nice for the rest of your life, never get angry again. You never say a cuss word again, all this kind of stuff. You can do it all, and it will do absolutely nothing to make up for or atone for your sins. It'll just make you the most holy sinner on earth, I guess. The Bible says if you want to be washed clean, you cannot do it yourself. It is not based on what you do. It is based on what Christ has done for you. The Bible says that you need the the mercy and grace of God in Christ. Understand, baptism cannot wash away your sins. A check cannot pay your sin debt. And going to church doesn't necessarily mean you're going to heaven. Can we get an amen on that? Does someone understand that? Just because you go to church doesn't mean you're necessarily going to heaven. The Bible says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. If we don't understand that, we don't understand the gospel. And so religious ritualism is the legalist solution to the problem of our sin and especially our ungodly anger. But I want you to notice what the biblical solution is. Look at verses 24 and 26 very quickly. This is the biblical solution. The Bible says, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you paid the last penny. You see, this is what Jesus is is saying here, and it's very hard for us to to deal with this, but the solution for anger is reconciliation, not retaliation. The biblical solution to the problem of anger in our lives is reconciliation, not retaliation. You see, sinners care about getting even. Christians care about getting right. Our God is a God of reconciliation, and because of that, as His followers, we should be about reconciliation as well. So, again, I know we have a lot of visitors here, but I'm going to say this anyways. Would you be surprised if I told you that Jesus would be more pleased if some of us were not here this morning? Pastor, please don't say that. We've got visitors (laughs) I know that some people don't want me to say that, but I'm going to anyways. Jesus would be more pleased if some of us were not here this morning. And again, you might be thinking, well, hey, listen, I'm doing good. I came to church this morning. Not only that, but I came to George's Creek Baptist Church this morning. Pastor, okay, so, so you let me know what you're saying here. I understand that. And again, I'm very thankful you're here. But here's what I know. I know that there are many people in here this morning who have relationships in their lives that are in need of reconciliation, and we haven't even attempted it yet. And did you notice Jesus said here, before you come to church, before you offer your gift, it would be better for you to leave and go be reconciled to your brother. Jesus is saying that we should be having a heart that is about reconciliation rather than retaliation. Before you come to church, before you participate in religious activities, you should be reconciled. And listen, if they won't be reconciled to you, that's on them. But as a Christian who has been reconciled to God in Christ, it is your responsibility to take the first step. Again, you're not responsible for how others are going to respond. 
You're not responsible for whether or not they're going to forgive you or whether or not they're going to be reconciled to you. But you are responsible for taking the first step. And that's hard, isn't it? I mean, that's really hard. Because if we're honest, some of us right now are thinking, well, hey, listen, you don't know my situation. You say I need to take the first step. They're the ones who did it to me. They're the ones who hurt me. They're the ones who betrayed my trust. They're the ones who broke our relationship. They're the reason that we no longer have a relationship anymore. I didn't do anything. I'm innocent in the situation. They should come to me. So why on earth should I go to them? I'm not denying that that might be the case in your situation. But here's what I know. We're the ones who rebelled against God. We're the ones who sinned against God. We're the ones who rejected Him. We're the ones who offended Him. We're the ones who betrayed God. We're the ones who broke our relationship with God that we had in the beginning. And yet, God did not say, okay, clean yourself up, get your act together, and then you come find me when you're good and ready. No, God pursued us in the midst of our sin and rebellion and depravity with relentless love. The Bible says that it was while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, God came after us. God pursued us. God did not give up on us. The people who turned their backs on God, God said, I'm still going to pursue you. I know that you've done this, but I'm still going to offer you grace. I'm still going to offer you mercy. I'm still going to offer you forgiveness. You can find life in Christ. And so God even offered up His only Son. Crucified Him on a cross for sinners like us who wanted nothing to do with God. God moved first. He took the first step. And if we're to be called Christians... Those who follow Christ, we have to take the first step as well. See, this is what truly righteous people do with their anger. This is why it's so much harder to be righteous in this way. This is why it's so hard to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. If it was just, don't go kill someone, it'd be easy for everybody, right? Most of the time. But when it's talking about this, and how we have to lay down our pride and our hurt, and our wounds in order to pursue reconciliation because that's what God did for us, that's hard. But this is what the Bible is saying here. The truly righteous relinquish their anger in light of God's mercy. The truly righteous relinquish their anger in light of God's mercy. So so let me just tell you what that means real quick. It means that your forgiveness of others, your pursuit of reconciliation... It has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not they deserve it. It's not about whether they deserve it, whether they're entitled to it, whether they have apologized for what they did to you, whether they feel bad about what they did to you. Your forgiveness is not dependent on any of that. It's all about what God has done for you in Christ. The Bible says in Colossians 3.13 that we're to forgive others as God in Christ forgave us. And here's what I know about myself. Maybe it applies to you too. I did not deserve God's forgiveness. I was not entitled to God's forgiveness. I did not feel bad about my sin when I was still in the midst of my sin. And yet, in spite of all of that, God did pursue me and offer me grace and mercy and forgiveness in Christ. And if that's how He forgave me, then it means that's how I'm supposed to forgive others. Whether they deserve it or not, whether they're entitled to it or not, whether they apologized or not. It's not about them. It's about what God has done in Christ. You see, 
truly being righteous, more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, it's not merely focusing on the outward. It's not convincing ourselves that, that, we ha- that because we've never actually murdered someone, we are righteous law keepers in God's eyes. It's not doing religious things to make us feel good about ourselves. It's recognizing that the anger in our hearts towards others warrants the exact same punishment as actually killing someone. It's recognizing that God doesn't just care about what you do. God cares about who you are. And God is always going to start with your heart because sin always starts in the heart. So so here's what I know this morning, right? Here's what I know. I know that there are some people in here who have so much anger in their hearts towards other people and their lives right now, they can't even be in the same room with them, right? There are people in here who have so much anger towards other people, you have to shop at a different grocery store because you know they shop at that other one. You can't go to that restaurant. You will never attend a family reunion or a family gathering because you know they're going to be there. You know that there are some people in here this morning who have that type of anger and they are ready to act upon it, to give rise to some form of destructive behavior. They're thinking ill of that other person, they're resenting them, and they're hoping they get what's coming for them. Maybe it has led to destructive behavior for some of us this morning. Harsh words that can't be taken back, actions that cannot be forgotten, and memories that will not fade. But I want you to understand this morning, church, that bitterness is a cancer that will eat you alive from the inside out. Hatred will destroy you. And you know this. Grudges will weigh you down with heavy chains and be a burden upon your life. If you've ever held a grudge against anyone for any length of time, you know that's the case. It controls how you feel. It controls what you do. It controls where you go. It literally controls your life because it is such a burden to you. Your life is consumed by that grudge and that hatred and that bitterness that you have towards other people. And I just want to tell you this morning, over time, that burden will only continue to build and the weight will get more and more. But the Bible says that freedom is found in forgiveness. Freedom is found in forgiveness. Relief is found in reconciliation, not retaliation. Even if you were to retaliate and give someone what's coming to them, it's not going to make you feel better. It's not going to take that burden away. Relief is found in reconciliation. So no, it's not going to be easy to take that first step. It never is. But God does not call His people to do what is easy. He calls us to do what is right. So I want us to think this morning about the relationships in our lives. Think about the ones that are broken and the ones that need to be reconciled. Think about the people in your life that you need to forgive and let that grudge go. Think about the people that you need to go to and ask them to forgive you for what you have done to them. And then I want you to think about how much better your life would be once you were free of that burden, that grudge, that hatred, that bitterness. Think about what God did for us in Christ. And rather than giving in to ungodly anger or worldly retaliation, as Christ's followers, we have an opportunity to show the world what it looks like to extend kingdom-hearted mercy. Amen? Let's pray.